This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn once again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking this morning at Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. When I first told people I was going to be preaching through the book of Hebrews, a number of people told me that this was one of their favorite books. Often people will say that the book of Hebrews is their favorite book. I have, I'm in my second year of discipleship groups with high school guys, and both years they've made fun of me because every book that we come to, I say, is my favorite book. But I do love the book of Hebrews. But what I've realized is that when people say the book of Hebrews is their favorite book, most likely they're referring to chapters 10, 11, 12, and a little bit of 13. This is where most of the familiar stuff is, more of the practical application. I have yet to meet anyone whose life verse is found in Hebrews 7 in the priestly order of Melchizedek. If that's true of you, I would love to know, but I've never met anybody that way. But there's many people who from the end of 10 and 11 and 12 and even 13 just find some really incredible verses. And it's true. These are really great portions of scripture. And we're going to be getting to those in the next couple of weeks. But the reality is, is that that transition to that more practical application, which everyone enjoys, begins in the middle of chapter 10, specifically in chapter 10, verse 19. It says, therefore, and then it begins to transition to more application. This is the way the New Testament books often do. They give us a lot of theological truth, and then based upon that, move us to application. And even here in verse 19, which will be our text for next week, it says, therefore, brothers, since. In other words, based upon what we have heard already, and because of the truths we've learned, here is the way that you should live. Now, that's important because it reminds us that practical application always flows from theological truth. You cannot know how to live until you first know what to believe. And everybody likes practical sermons. Everyone wants a little nugget that they can hold on to and leave in the week, applying it to their life. And I understand that and I agree with that. All I know is this. Actions that are not motivated and grounded in truth will never be life-giving actions. I mean, just think about what we've learned about the new covenant We've been talking a lot about the new covenant, and we'll talk about it a little bit more next week. And it seems like some abstract theological concept, but the new covenant reminds us that this relationship that God is inviting us into with himself is just that. It's a relationship, and he changes us, and he moves us from the inside out. And when we begin to understand that, all of a sudden, there is real life with Jesus, no more systems and, and structures and demands. It's more of a, an authentic life with Jesus. But that's understood and experienced when we know the theological truths. I say that to say that the, the past 
20 sermons have prepared us for this application we're going to get into next week. And the reason I'm telling you that now is because there is one last theological section in chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, that comes right before it says, therefore, brothers, which means brothers and sisters, since those things are true, here's how you should live. And those 18 verses that we'll look at this morning, they really summarize where we've been in the book of Hebrews. Starting in chapter 4, verse 14, there's the beginning of this understanding of the high priest. And that understanding goes all the way through our text today in verse 18. And so I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 18. If you're there in Hebrews 10, say amen. Listen to these words. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, these Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here's a quote from Psalm 40, but it was prophetic about what Jesus himself would say, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Old covenant gone, the second has replaced it. And by that, he will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, which he also quoted in Hebrews 8. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. These verses are used as a transition. So about six chapters of just deep theological truths leading us into the application, which will begin next week, and the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to be more of that feel. Yet, before getting there, the author wants to summarize where we've been. Because he does know that we can't just build our lives on practical application, we must build our life on solid theological truth. And so he gives us this summary of where we've been. But there's actually a summary within the summary. 
So I was trying to discern how, how to preach this text. And I realized that everything that is said in this text, which is a summary of everything that was said before, is summarized in verse 14. That was a lot of summaries. Are you with me? Then. Verse 14 says this, listen. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's it. There's four foundations right there in verse 14, which summarize everything we have seen so far in the book of Hebrews that are foundations in which we must build our practical lives upon. I want to give those to you this morning. I encourage you to write these down. The first foundation is this. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. I get that from the first five words. You can circle those. For by a single offering. That's the offering of Jesus Christ. For by a single offering. This little phrase right here comes after six chapters about the high priest. As I said, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, there are 34 references to the high priest until you come to this moment and only two references after that. One of the ways we know that there's a transition happening in the book. A lot about a high priest. Now, given just our lives and the world in which we live in and the complications of life and everything you're going through and everything I'm going through, all of your difficulties, all of your questions, all of your insecurities, all of your sufferings, physically, mentally, spiritually. Sometimes in the midst of all of that, you come to church hoping for something to get you through and then you wonder why we're talking about a high priest. It does seem a bit irrelevant. How is it that a high priest helps me get through today? Well, the answer is this. Every single thing you need for every situation in your life, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, everything you need and more than you need is found in God. Everything. There's nothing you need to make it through today or tomorrow or the next day to navigate the illness, the sickness, the struggles, the children, the emotions. There's nothing you need that God does not have. He is sufficient for all of these things. In him is everything we need for life and godliness. Every blessing in the heavenly places is in him. Everything you need practically is found in God. But here's the problem. Because of sin, you can't get it. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says your sins have separated you from God. So you, you need all that God has, but you cannot get to it. And that's the reason you need a high priest. A high priest is a mediator. A high priest is someone who is going to help take care of the sin so that you might get to God and getting to God, find everything you need for life. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that all of that Old Testament, Old Covenant system of high priest and sacrifices was all, as it says in chapter 10, verse 1, a shadow. They were never enough to take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. They always leave us, chapter 10, with a reminder of sins. They were never enough, but they weren't meant to be. They were shadows of a greater reality that was someday going to come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come as the reality. He is the great high priest 
who through the sacrifice of his own body has made a way for us to get everything that God has for us. So that our sins can be taken away and all of the righteousness and goodness and sustaining grace we can have access to. And that's the whole point of the first part of of chapter 10. The Old Testament was a shadow and it can never make us perfect. It's impossible for those things to make us perfect. But Jesus says in verse seven, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. God, Jesus says, you've prepared a body for me. You have made it so that I could come in the flesh, God in the flesh dwelling among us, beholding his glory, John 1, giving us grace upon grace. And Jesus says, I've come to do your will. I've come to be a willing sacrifice. Why has Jesus come to sacrifice himself? Because it's the only way that you can get all that God has created you to get. Jesus has come and laid down his life because your sins must be taken care of in order for you to ever have access to God. And so instead of this old covenant where there's reminders every year of sins, Jesus says, no, I am the one who is coming to bring you to God. And so what that means now There's no longer any external works or systems or sacrifices that you can ever do that will take care of your sin. There's nothing. You cannot take care of your own sin. You cannot atone for your own sin. Jesus is the only one who can pay for your sins. And you say, well, what's so practical about that? Well, you need God today. Right now, you need God. And you're going to need him this afternoon, and you're going to need him tonight. And if you're still alive tomorrow, you're going to need him then. And the only way you're ever going to get to him is by trusting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The one who has made everything God has available to us. That's why it's practical. Only Jesus can take away your sins. Second foundational truth is this. Only Jesus can save you from your sins And when Jesus saves you, he saves you completely. When Jesus saves you, get that one down, he saves you completely. I get that from the second phrase. So, for by a single offering, only Jesus can save you. He has perfected. When he saves you, he saves you completely. So chapter 10 tells us that this old covenant with its external systems and sacrifices, it says it can never, verse one, make you perfect. It's impossible. It is impossible for anything in the Old Testament to perfect you, to make you righteous and holy. But what the old covenant could not do, Jesus can do. Jesus is able to make you perfect. Look at those words though. It says he has perfected. That's perfect tense. This is something that has already been done. This is something that is true. This is something that's a reality. Now listen, what this means is this, is Jesus Christ has made those who trust in him perfect. To which you say, no, he hasn't. And I say, well, yes, he has. You say, no, no, he hasn't. And I say, no, he really has. And you say, pastor, this is great. Thank you. You're doing a great job in the sermon. Oh, I mean, it's okay. But, but there, I know me. He has not made me perfect. To which I say one more time. Yes, he has. Through a single offering, he has perfected. What it means is this. is Through the death of Jesus Christ, he has removed your sins and declared you perfect. 
He has declared you righteous. This is why in, in chapter eight, he quotes Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. And he says this, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I remember their sins no more. He quotes it again in our text for today. Why? Because he knows you're not gonna believe it the first time. He knows you're gonna say, well, there's no way that's true. And so he quotes it again in verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Listen, how is it possible for you not to have been made perfect if he doesn't remember your sins anymore? I told you a couple of weeks ago when we preached this text that you need to stop remembering what God has already forgotten. You need to stop remembering what God has already forgotten. He remembers your sins no more. Which is why chapter nine, verse 14 says this, through Christ, we also can have a pure and a clean conscience. Which means we don't have to live with guilt and shame. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you do not have to remember all of those sins of the past. And you don't have to still feel the weight and the shame and the condemnation of it. Why? Because Jesus has already been judged for all of those things. So you don't need to keep judging yourself for them because Jesus took the judgment. Now you might remember last week I gave you a, a little theological term. I, I try not to do this too often, but I do it every once in a while for a few reasons. Uh, one, because it's just good to have these in your toolbox. You know, you go to Thanksgiving, try to impress somebody. College students go home and you say one of these and people are going to go, wow, you learned something. So I give you these to just kind of put down somewhere and then bring it out at a necessary time when you want to impress someone. I also give them to you because they're important and they're glorious. So last week I told you about Penal substitution. Penal mean punishment. So what, what this term means is that upon the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus died not for his sin because he never sinned. He died for your sins. So Jesus upon the cross takes all of the punishment that you deserve for every sin you've ever committed. Think about that. All of the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus. So he is our substitute on the cross. Penal substitution. But I'm gonna give you another one this morning, all right? Write this down. Imputed righteousness. Imputed means counted. It means credited. What that means is this. Not only does Jesus take upon himself your punishment, you then get his righteousness. So all of the sin you've committed in your life, Jesus paid for. All of the righteousness that Jesus lived in his life now gets credited to your account. So God counts you righteousness because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That deserved like at least three amens. That's really good news. Your punishment removed, and now you get all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what it teaches us in Romans 4. Romans 4 is talking about how Abraham believed, and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. Listen to these words from Romans 4, 22 and following. It says, that is why faith was counted to him, Abraham, as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for our sakes. Because it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Meaning this whole idea of having righteousness credited to our account is for us. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And he says it's for those who believe, those who will not trust their own works, but trust what Jesus Christ has done. What means is this, is the death of Jesus Christ is the means by which your sins are taken care of and you become saved perfectly. He has perfected. When Jesus saves, he saves you completely. I say, what does that have to do in my practical life? Well, it means this. You don't have to live with any guilt or shame or condemnation. Because in the eyes of God and the one whose eyes matters most, he looks at you and he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. He sees you clothed in that righteousness. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. When Jesus saves you, he saves you completely. The third foundation is this. When Jesus saves you, he saves you eternally. For by a single offering, only Jesus can save you from sins. He has perfected. When Jesus saves you, he saves you completely. Here's the next one. For all time. When Jesus saves you, he saves you eternally. Now, this is a big theme in chapter 10. It, it says that Jesus has come as a once and for all sacrifice in verse 10. In verse 12, it says that Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice. Listen to these words from Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Jesus saves, he saves eternally. So two weeks ago, I got, I got a call. Someone had some theological questions. I called them back. First question, can I lose my salvation? To which I said, well, if you earned it, you can lose it. But you didn't earn it. It was given to you. And it was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so if you got saved because you did a bunch of things in order to get saved, then it would make sense to me that you could stop doing those things and lose it. But if scripture is true, that you're saved because of what Christ has done for you, and you're trusting in what Christ has done, you cannot lose that. He has eternally secured those who have believed in him. This is why Philippians 1, 6, 6 says, he who began a good work and you will complete it. So if you started it, you may not have the ability to finish it. But if he started it, he'll finish it. The one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And by his grace and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he will finish what he has started. I love how Romans 8 says this. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorifies. You say, Pastor, what do all those words mean? Well, I don't really know. But I know this. God finishes what he starts. <laughs> That's what I, so I don't know all the other stuff. There is some mystery and we can be okay with the mystery. All I know is this. If God saves you, he's gonna make sure you get to the end. He will glorify those he justifies. This is why John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if all of this was me holding on to Jesus, I might let go. 
But if this is really Jesus holding on to me, he has promised that he will not let go because he saves and he secures. So how's this practical? Well, it's practical because you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Like you just, it's like the book of Hebrews just wants us to, to look to the cross and see what Christ has done and throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't wanna pay for my own sins and so I'm trusting you to pay for my sins. Uh, I'm asking that I might receive your righteousness and that you just rest. You take a deep breath in what Christ has done. I've told you, I, I have some concerns sometime with the attitude that goes with the phrase, once saved, always saved. Was that true? Well, yes. But what I've discovered being a Baptist for a really long time, that for what that means for a lot of people is, Pastor, I, I took care of that. Like I said the prayer at VBS when I was five. Then I wasn't sure, so I walked an aisle at 10 and filled out a card. I did that. I'm good. Now, if someone says that, and then they don't have any hunger and thirst for righteousness or any desire to walk with God, but yet they're saying, I did that, I really question the reality of their salvation, and here's the reason why. Because the new covenant says that when you become a believer, God gives you a new heart. And we don't always hunger and thirst to the same degree, but those who know the Lord hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, if you made a decision when you were five and you have no desire for the things of the Lord at all, you really should be concerned about that decision. Because the new covenant, God gives you a new heart and then all of a sudden you long and desire to do the things of God. He gives you affections and desires and that's why he quotes again in verse 16, I'm gonna put my law on their heart and I'm gonna write the things to do on their minds, in their conscience. But when Jesus saves you, he saves you eternally. The last foundation is this. For by a single offering, only Jesus can save you from sin. He has perfected when Jesus saves you, he saves you completely. For all time, when Jesus saves you, he saves you eternally. And here's the last one. Those who are being sanctified when Jesus saves you, he saves you daily. When Jesus saves you, write that down, he saves you daily. Now, right when we thought everything was clear, it changes tenses on us. Do you see this? He has perfected. This is a fact for those who know Christ. For all time, those who are being sanctified. And the word sanctified means being made perfect. So he says, God has perfected for all time those who are becoming perfect. So pastor, you should have stopped like 30 seconds ago. We, we were clear. You just said that when we were saved, we're saved completely and we're saved eternally. What does this mean? Well, it's the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Where do I stand as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ positionally? Where am I? I stand holy and righteous before a good God because I've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So God looks at me and he says, you're righteous, you're perfected, stand there. But that new reality is being worked out day by day from the inside out. So in the new covenant, he makes us righteous not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And then all of a sudden we, we try 
moment by moment, not out of duty, but out of delight to work out that salvation, Philippians 2, that God has worked in us. You could think about it this way, and this, this may or may not be an illustration from my personal life. Could be, probably not, but could be, but maybe not. Imagine a guy waits to get married till he's like almost 30, okay? And he's just done a lot in those 30 years. He left college and he went overseas and stayed for a couple of years and then wanted to stay longer. So he stayed longer and didn't ask anybody. And then he came back and he got a house and he ate pizza on the couch and left the box there for a couple of days. And he's just kind of doing his thing and he's not asking anybody. He's just, he's just living like a single guy, okay? And then imagine one day he sees this girl and he thinks, well, that, would, that makes me not want to be single anymore. But he's confident there's no chance. And somehow, in God's grace, there's a chance. And this chance, it starts to become more of a chance. Again, I'm just making this up as I go. There, it becomes, becomes more of a chance. And next thing you know, you're like standing before a couple of hundred people. And you're, you're about to get married. Now, here, here's the amazing thing about getting married. Like right now, at this moment, totally single, right? Just single. And in 30 seconds later, totally not single and completely married. That's, that's amazing. That's like a really massive life transition that happens when you repeat some words. <laughs> like I just said some words and now I'm, I'm married. And not just like before friends and family, this, this is actual, a marriage ceremony is actually a covenant made in heaven. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So now I have made a covenant. This guy has made a covenant. Ah, so close. This random guy has made a covenant with this girl in front of friends and family and before God, this unbreakable covenant, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, now here's the amazing thing. All of a sudden, I am married. That is a fact. In heaven, in the eyes of God, I'm now married. But it takes a while to learn how to be married. Like even, like for like 18 years, this guy's still learning how to be married. There's a lot of singleness and there's a lot of single years and, and there's a lot of habits. And I mean, this is a very real thing and I'm not trying to love my wife because I got married. I'm trying to learn how to be married because I love my wife and I made this covenant with her. And so I've got to continue to try to learn how to work this out. Listen, when you come to faith, in Jesus Christ, there is an unbreakable covenant that has been made in heaven. And nothing can unbreak that covenant. What God has joined together, this goes for your salvation, no man can separate. Man, there is a lot of years of trying to work out that reality in our everyday life. So here's what it says. By one sacrifice of Jesus Christ... He has made perfect forever those who are being made practically perfect. And that's what life with Jesus looks like. 
And that's the beauty of the new covenant because in the old covenant, it always felt like I've got to do all of these things to be right with God. The new covenant says this, no, I've done everything that needs to be done. Now you're declared righteous. And from that inner reality in which God has worked in you, I have put my spirit. And now the works that you're doing are not a duty to be right with God. They are a delight because you love him. And you actually know by experience that it's better to walk with God. Like there's just more joy and peace in walking with God. You are not walking with God to make God happy. You're walking with God because you've discovered, discovered it's just a happier life walking with Jesus. Hard, yes. Suffering, yes. Better, absolutely. There's nothing more miserable than walking in sin. And so now God gives us this new life in which it's spirit-filled and dynamic, this life-giving relationship with the Lord. And those are the foundations in which we build our life. We build our life on that solid foundation of what has been done for me in Christ Jesus and what God is still doing in me and through me. One of the things that I've been concerned about as we preach the book of Hebrews, which I, I was not expecting this, is I'm concerned that some of you who have heard it all and been around for a long time may not be experiencing that new covenant life. That you don't know what it's like to live this spirit-filled life. That you don't sense the hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't sense this dynamic, life-giving relationship with God. And I want you to. I long for you to. I'm preaching my heart out so that you would. I'm praying that God, by his spirit, would convict you from that. And you say, well, how does that become a reality in my life? Listen, you ask him. You ask him, you say, Lord, I want everything that you have. I'm trusting you. I'm giving myself to you. No longer I, but you. I want you. God, would you save me? Would you give me a new heart and a new life? May I be filled with the spirit and know what it's like to live that life. You simply trust in him. There's nothing more complicated. Just throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want that newness of life. Now this morning, we are going to respond by taking communion. Now don't, don't grab your stuff yet. Hold on. I'm not done. Hold on. And here's the reason. It's a beautiful visual picture of everything we just talked about. I mean, only Jesus can save you from your sins. So this, this symbolizes the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could not do this. The blood of Jesus alone could do this. It reminds me that Jesus saves me completely. I, I, I take part in this. And now it has been applied to me. So this is just a symbol of what Jesus did. When I partake of it, it's a symbol of what has been done for me. Jesus saves eternally. I have to receive this. I can't work for this. I receive this by faith. And listen, the taking of this reminds me that God is continuing to do his work in me. He says, as often as you do this, remember me. It is a reminder that God's not done, that I'm still learning how to be a follower of Jesus Christ and that grace is still sufficient for me. But it's also a reminder of this, listen, the reason communion is only for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because as you take of this communion, there's nothing magical about this whatsoever, it is a symbol, but as you take it, it is symbolizing that it has been applied to you. That my sins have been forgiving. That I am trusting the broken body of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we 
have been doing every week, we are going to prepare our hearts for this by getting on our knees and praying. We're just gonna take some moments to worship, to call upon the name of the Lord, to confess sin, to call upon him in whatever way, and let's prepare our hearts. So let's do that now. Let's get on our knees. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.